Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. In today's case, I'll be sharing with you a testament to the saying that truth is indeed stranger than fiction. I am referring to the case of the old lady killer, which was a name given to a serial killer who terrorized Mexico City in the early 2000s. So grab your vice of choice. I will be knitting. My name is Sophia Talley, and this is True Crime and Knit. joined by Aro of Aro Knits and Pearls podcast and the infamous True Crime in Midnight podcast. And I just want to say, as soon as I found her podcast, I realized that I had to reach out to her because this is something that I wanted to do for a while, but then I realized I might be crazy in wanting to combine True Crime and Knits. And then in seeing Arrow, I felt validated and knowing that I'm not the only one that gonna, that wants to do this combination. And for some reason, she agreed to be on the show. So here we are. Arrow, can you say hi? Yeah, I, I love True Crime, obviously. So anybody who's interested in combining knitting and True Crime like I did, like, heck yes, the more the merrier. I've been wanting to pick your brain. Okay, well, my brain is ready to be picked. Yeah. Juana Barraza was born in Hidalgo, Mexico on December 27, 1957. Her mother, Justa Semperio, and I'm trying to pronounce this correctly. I have a Latinx background, but I was never taught Spanish and I'm devastated. So I'm trying. Feel free to yell at me in the comments. But her mother, Justa Semperio, raised her with her then husband, and Juana never knew who her biological father was. Hidalgo was rural Mexico, and life in rural Mexico in the 60s through 70s were just rough. And there was just very little resources, very little medical care and schooling. And according to the Center of Global Development, this is a quote that I just want to look up just to understand what Juana was going through at the time. Education and health indicators in rural areas are as poor as the people themselves. Although more than 90% of rural children attend primary school at some time, about half drop out after the sixth grade. And among those who continue, some 42% drop out after ninth grade. Violence and all manner of health problems characterize the lives of Mexico's rural communities, end quote. So what all that's saying is that where Juana lived and in the time that she lived and grew up, in rural Mexico was that there just was not a lot of resources and she didn't finish school. It wasn't common to finish school where she was from. And so I'm saying all this just to give you a background because what happens next is completely unbelievable. And it goes back to what I was saying that truth is stranger than fiction. So throughout her childhood, Juana was subject to physical, mental, and sexual abuse at the hands of her mother. Her mother was an alcoholic. Everyone in town knew her as an alcoholic. And Juana grew up in poverty and barely knew how to read or write. Now, this is the part of the story that gets hazy. Every media outlet seems to have a different story of what happened next. But from what I can 
gather, when Juana was 13, her mother sold her to a local man named Jose Lugo for three beers. Oh, no. She sold her for three beers. And the part that gets hazy there is whether or not it was three or two beers or, you know, like the number of beers. That's the part that got like people were just like, what is going on here? Of course, that's what people get hung up on. Like, and I got to say, like, I got to say, like, Mexico has a very strong drinking culture. Like, I'm South Korean and South Korea has a crazy strong drinking culture. So for the rest of the townspeople to recognize one individual as like the town alcoholic, like you have to be really bad to be recognized as an alcoholic in these communities. So, like, I, I get that. I see that. Yes. And when I was looking this up, because as you can tell, everyone was hanging on to the minor details of this whole situation. I saw many sources quoting as saying everyone knew that she'll do anything for a drink. So yeah, it's almost as if Juana didn't have a chance, but like beyond her social climate and culture, she just didn't have a chance. And so for some sources say five years, Jose basically owned her. He would tie her to his bed and rape her. And in the time that she was held captive with Jose, she was pregnant twice. One pregnancy ended in an abortion and the other ended with her first son being born. And like she was 13 and even normal, quote unquote, normal 13 year old experiences are traumatic. So like actual trauma experience at 13 has got to be like tenfold it's just around this time her uncles were able to rescue her and her family had allegedly told them that she ran away with her rapist so her family didn't know she was in trouble and once they got a inkling that something was wrong they had to run and rescue her but unfortunately, it was just too late. By this time, there was just so much psychological and physical damage that these events will shape her life in the years to come. Yeah. And so many people I know, like I do this as well. When you remember something embarrassing you did when you were like 12 and I'm 28 now and I still think about that stuff. So for her to go back, not to just like something cringy she said when she was 13, but actual like sexual assault on a you know, repeated basis. That is the age when you are becoming yourself. So pretty much if the five years is true, that's pretty much her entire adolescence. Can you imagine your entire teenage years being, you know, controlled by this random guy? And how would you feel towards your mother? You know, like, it just sounds awful. Like, oh, God, that's so sad. But you know, Lana was strong. And once Freed from captivity, she tried to move on. She had three more children, all from different relationships, and all of these relationships were abusive, with many of the fathers being alcoholics. By all accounts, she was a loving and doting mother, and it seemed like she was really trying to put her past behind her and take care of her children. In fact, people who knew Lana and her children just thought they were all well-behaved and polite and normal kids. And tragically, though, her oldest son, died from health complications following a mugging when he was reportedly a young man some sources say around 20 ish when i can't get a break yeah the hits just keep on coming and her oldest that was the child that was from the first captor right yes yes oh my god so she was like doing her best trying to oh lord 
She really did, from all accounts, was just trying to be a good mom. And in fact, she she did this by supporting her children with multiple jobs. You know, she would do odd jobs for the neighborhood and clean homes. She also supported them with petty theft, but, you know, I'm trying not to judge. But her real passion actually laid elsewhere. And on the weekends, Juana moonlighted as a professional Lucha Libre wrestler. Oh my God, that's so cool. You heard me, Lucha Libre wrestling. For those who are unaware, let me explain briefly because I shouldn't be laughing, but I am because Lucha Libre wrestling translates from Spanish to free fight, and it's a type of freestyle wrestling. And it's very theatrical. If you've never seen it, the wrestlers wear really bright, sometimes bedazzled, colorful masks, almost like cartoonish. And they're known for doing what's called in the wrestling team, I have to read this closely, a high-flying maneuver in which they fly over the ring, like they jump on like the ring and they fly over and they jump on people. Side note, I've never thought I'd be interested in going to one of these, but now I really want to go to a match. It's on my bucket list after researching this. Actually, in Austin, there was a league of Lucha Libre style wrestling when I lived in Austin, and it was called Party World Wrestling. So if y'all live in Austin, you should go because I've heard it is a hoot. That sounds... Amazing. And in fact, I have to go if I ever end up in Austin, Texas, which I haven't been to Texas yet. So I'm going to have to go. So Juana's wrestling name was La Dama del Silencio, which means in English, the Lady of Silence. And she competed professionally until she was 35, when she unfortunately suffered a spine injury during a match. And she couldn't just stay away from the sport, though. And she began to work as a popcorn vendor for the ring. So that way she can still be in on the action. It's like people who get into roller derby, like get obsessed with it. I had a friend do it for one month. And at the end of the month, she had like a broken leg. She had to get shoulder surgery. Like, But she was like, it was so fun, Aro. I wish I could do it. But my doctor told me that if I keep doing it, I will literally like fall apart. So, but... I get it. She loved it. It's like an adrenaline rush for her. And I also wonder how much of her anger she was getting out due to her past. And like Lucha, Lucha Libre, it's so much, it's so theatrical, like you were saying. So it really lets you become a different personality. So I guess for her, it was an escape from being who she was. Instead of Juana, she's, you know, the lady of silence. And that's what I was thinking, like, man, like, this has to be an outlet for her. And it was one of her passions. And around this time, in the early 2000s, Juana seemed to be content in life, you know, living in Mexico City with her two youngest children. Unfortunately, at the time, the community was starting to notice similarities in murders across the city. I'm going to stop here for a knitter mission. So today on the show, I actually have Aro of Aro Knits and Pearls. So thank you so much for joining me. I am so excited. Like, I really loved the idea of someone doing a true crime knitting thing. That wasn't me. The reason I started was because I wanted that content out there. And now that 
I can listen to somebody that's not my voice, that's not me doing the research, like, this is great. I love this. I feel the same way because I can't listen to myself, obviously, just because we all hate the sound of our voices. And then also what I don't want to hear is myself for an hour, you know, and I already know the story. So I feel the same way. So like anytime I see another show, I just get super excited because this is content that apparently the people want. <laughs> it might be the same people who are asking other knitters to do it, but that's fine. It's fine. It's, it's just the same five people, but you know what I mean? The more content, the merrier. And we have hours of knitting. And speaking of knitting, you know, I always do research on people who's on my show because I'm a nosy Nancy. And... First of all, you always film in front of your stash, and I'm just shook because holy crap, your stash is gorgeous. Thank you, thank you. It's taken many years of investing in this, but it's my pride and joy. I'm thinking about getting it insured, but yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. I think you should, just like Mariah Carey's legs. I think her legs are insured. Oh my god, are they? I think so. I'm almost positive. Oh my god. Well, I'm sure her hers are insured for a lot more than my stash would be. Well, that was the first thing I noticed was like your beautiful stash. And then I clicked on your video with your stack of sweaters. Can you tell me how long did it take you to knit that stack of sweaters? Um, so that was only I knit 23 sweaters in the year 2020. And they, the cutoff was that it had to be started in 2020. So they weren't like previous whips or anything. But yeah, that was 2020. This year, I'm hoping for 25 sweaters. And so far, I am at 15. So fingers crossed that we make it. Wow. Do you exclusively knit sweaters because of that? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I I used to, when I first started knitting, it was accessories, you know, I think everybody pretty much starts with scarves and shawls and hats and, and I like making those, but I didn't wear them a lot. One, I have a ridiculously large head, so like most hats don't fit me comfortably. And I lived in Austin, Texas, and like a shawl, there were only so many days a year where it was cold enough to actually wear one. So it felt like I put in a lot of work without a lot of utility. So when I started making garments, I was like, oh, not only are they a way to use up the stash that I collect, you know, it's a separate hobby, but also I get to actually like show off my knits and wear them. And then I kind of fell down the garment hole and I haven't gotten out. So, so is the fact that you collect a lot of different like skeins of yarn, is that why I notice a lot of your sweaters are color work? So, yes, I do love color work, and I don't buy single skeins unless I know for a fact it's going to complement a color already in my stash. But I think generally I just like the construction of color work. Like, it makes me feel, one, when you're doing the yoke, I love top-down yokes. So when you're doing the yoke top-down, you're like, okay, this is it, I'm going to focus, I'm doing a lot of work, and then your brain gets fried. But then by the time your brain gets fried, you're done with the yoke, and then you just have that nice stock in it body. Yeah, it's just, it goes through the life process of my sweater knitting really well. I absolutely love top-down circular yokes. I taught a class last weekend about it, and oh my goodness, like, I, I don't want to bore the public with knitting math, but the math on circular yokes is just like chef's kiss. Like, it's just gorgeous the way it just fits. It's perfect for color work patterns. Yeah, and it's... 
so flattering for pretty much any body size. Like, really, I highly recommend circular yoga. Me too. I'm not just saying that because I teach a class on it either. It's just one of my passions as a designer. Have you ever thought about designing? Like, is that something you're interested in? Yeah, actually, super secret spoiler, except not secret. I'm planning on designing a garment very, very soon. I'm going to start the sample right after my birthday, the end of this month. So hopefully that will happen soon. I saw you in all those sweaters. I'm like, okay, so you have all this know-how and all these sweaters. You have to know how to design. I'm so nervous. I'm so nervous. And I have so many designs in my head that I've been saving up. And the way it worked out was the first design, I'm working with a dyer and it's it's the most complicated one. So I feel like I planned this very poorly. I should have done the easy designs first and then gone up. But no, I'm, I'm like going straight in. And this is like more involved construction than I normally would ever do. I'm a creature of comfort. So when I see that something is seamed, I'm automatically out. I can't seam. I won't seam. Refuse to. Absolutely not. <laughs> so I, that's what I can promise to my followers. I'm like, it will absolutely not be seamed. You may have to pick up stitches, but I don't consider that seaming. That's different. Seaming, it's, it's one of the easiest things. But I don't know why we hate it so much. I absolutely despise it. When I lived in Austin at Hill Country Weavers, there was a lady there who was basically like a contractor at uh, Hill Country Weavers. And what you would do is you would bring her your finished garment, but like she would seam it for you. She would weave an end. She would block it. Like she handled everything. And I think it was like a dollar per end, but I swear to God, it was worth every penny. It was worth every penny because when I did like a faded color work combined piece, there were like 50 ends on that thing. And she made it look perfect. So yeah, 100% I would buy it. First of all, that's not enough pennies. That's not enough pennies. It need to be $2 per strand. <laughs> she was a saint. And I've asked other yarn stores if they have someone like that. And they're like, God, I wish. I've never heard of such a thing. So where was this? This was in Hill Country Weavers in Austin. And she was a lifesaver. Not all heroes were capes. Some so loose ends. <laughs> she was she was a saint, truly. So what I also been dying to know is that you just got started from what I can see. So my true crime knit night, I've only I think it's the fourth episode, so I think over like three months, I wanna say. And I only do the monthly because it's a lot of work, as I'm sure you've realized. And I'm like, I have a full-time job. I have, you know, special needs dog to take care of. I got things going on. So I'm sorry. Like, I know my followers who love true crime. It's not all of them, but a lot of them love true crime. And they want, you know, weekly episodes. And I'm like, guys, I, I can't do that. <laughs> Preaching to the choir. I was just wondering, so it's been three months or so. So in those three months, what I'm getting at here is that your show has acquired thousands of views. And I just want to say congratulations on that because it's just so well received. It's just such a really good show. I recommend everyone to check it out who's listening. Because if you're listening to this and you're probably like RO shows too, um, of course, with all my guests, I always put, you know, links and everything in the show notes. So please visit the show notes to hear more. But that's what I was trying to get at is that in that short amount of time, you've acquired so many views. And one of the things that 
were the most commented on my video when I first started doing true crime was that someone was like, you have to talk to Aro. You have to talk to you. So I thought I was like, okay, that's it. Because I already knew of you since then because I was just like interested. So I was like, you know what? That's it. That's why you're here. That's so funny. Seriously, like my channel has been kind of a runaway success because I really, I didn't think anything would come of it. But it's been good enough that I'm like, okay, well now people want these videos. Like if I am one day late, because I normally upload every Saturday. If I'm one day late, people are in my DMs like, where is it? Give it to me. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So yeah, it's nice that people want it. It's awesome. It is literally awesome. Yeah, and it really was like a success. What is your most watched video and how many views does it have? Do you know or off the top of your head? The most watched one is is the one you watched, My Fat Stack of Sweaters. And that one I think has under a little under 5,000 views, which is insane to me. But I think people just like it's my longest video. I didn't I don't plan out my episodes. I just start talking and see what happens. But since I was showing 22 or 23 sweaters in that video like it's a lot so it takes a long time and that one is the most watched i was just really impressed i i love that video just because a i've never seen someone have that many color work sweaters in, in one spot so i was just fascinated by like the sheer like inhumanness of it and then i was also fascinated by, <laughs> by the stash and i was like oh boy this is this is cool yeah, I I really struggled with like, where am I going to film my video? Where am I going to film my video? I thought I wanted a blank wall, but then I was like, you know, I'm going to do it in front of my stash because if people don't like my voice, if people don't like the way I move, at least they can look at the yarn behind me. It's great and it's well organized. Like my stash looks like my cat and my toddler got to it because they did. So hence why I just have wine bottles behind me right now and some llamas. So yeah, I'm really impressed by that. And then also in that video before... I get to sidetrack with my wine and llamas. I wanted to ask about your background in, in law. Yeah, I went to law school at the University of Texas in Austin. So I lived there for quite some time. I currently practice law in Utah. And what I do is I work at a nonprofit doing eviction defense and debt collection. Our clients don't actually pay us. We have grants and private donations that come in. So our, our law firm is nonprofit. The clients pay nothing out of pocket, but it's just kind of a way to help out the community, especially in these hard times. Okay, so I'm having a blank stare because my brain just exploded there. So what? that's amazing. You're doing the nonprofit because I don't think people realize like how much that can help families. So I really appreciate that. Kudos to that. I have to get that the way. But, but what I really want to know right now is, does that help you when you look at true crime cases? Yes, I think having a law background definitely helps for sure because when you get to the actual hearing process, there's so many things that just a casual reader wouldn't, I don't even want to say understand, but they wouldn't generally like realize how important certain things are in the trial process. So a lot of my cases, I try to talk about the court procedures because it's really important as to how they were sentenced rather than just the crime itself. And also because it's something I know, right? Like I'm not, I'm not a medical examiner, so I can't talk about, you know, particular hyoid bones and if they break, what the significance of that is other than, you know, what other normal people know just from watching TV and reading. But I do know about law. So that's the one thing I got. Oh my gosh. So... I hate to break this up, but we're going to have to go back to Juana and Lucha Libre. 
So she was fulfilling her passion. And despite her horrible past of abuse at the hands of her mother and captors, she honestly seemed from the outside looking in, seemed to be having a good life. However, beginning in 2002, citizens in Mexico City began to notice that something was just wrong. Elderly women were beginning to be found bludgeoned and or strangled to death in their homes. And these women were all aged from 64 to 79, and many lived alone. And at first, police did not investigate the string of murders because from what I can gather when doing research on this, murder was just a constant problem in Mexico City. And I believe it still is. And so the police blamed that like all these murders of elderly women were just sensationalized journalism. And this was partly because at the time, many just could not understand why anyone would hurt elderly women. And in Mexican culture, elderly women are treasured and are meant to be protected by their families and well cared for. It's almost like a spiritual thing. And it just didn't make sense to the police or to a lot of the general public why someone would do this, why someone would target elderly people. But through much public outcry, the media outlets just continue reporting upon it. And they began reporting that it was all the work of one serial killer and who they dove La Mata Vijitas, which translates to the old lady killer. And the police took up the case in 2005 which was three years after the murders began. And in November 2005, Mexican police, using witness testimony, were able to build a profile of their murderer. Police released a statement reporting that they were looking for either a robust woman or a man in women's clothing with short blonde hair and approximately 45 years of age. The suspect was often seen wearing a stethoscope around their neck. And police also noticed that in all of the killings, the murderer would enter the home invited as there was not a sign of forced entry. And the items used in the attack were ones that were found nearby. And all of the victims were either bludgeoned or strangled with these items or both. And it is believed that the perp was using some kind of medical ploy to gain entrance into these homes. And there is another profile, a psychological profile that kind of plays with this too. The man, they're, they're thinking it's a man. And this is a quote, not me saying this, but... The profile says a man with homosexual homosexual preferences, victim of childhood abuse, lived surrounded by women. He could have had a grandmother or lived with an elderly person, has resentment to that feminine figure and possesses great intelligence. So they have a narrow, clear profile. And I'm always very impressed with these police profiles because a lot of the times they are correct but in this instance things do not go as planned with this physical and psychological description in mind police decided okay this has to be a man in woman's clothing that was their belief and so they decided to harass the lgbtq plus community for months months 
months. And they would arrest and interrogate literally random sex workers who presented themselves as women. And you know, because arresting randoms doesn't ever seem to help progress a case, there's no surprise that these arrests and interrogations only succeeded in the public and media criticizing and ridiculing them even more. And they totally deserved every ounce of it. I think no disrespect to... Mexico City authorities, I guess, as a disclaimer, don't sue me. But I think a lot of profiles, it, it's reflective of the writer. So if the writer has misconceptions about people in the LGBTQ community, that's how they're going to write it. And, you know, the data points do show that most serial killers are men. So I'm sure they kind of glommed onto this idea that, okay, statistically it has to be a man, and therefore we're going to extrapolate based on our own biases and whatever. And I think it's just a way to harass people and get away with it. Before I go on, can I just say that if if it was a man in women's clothing, why couldn't it have been in a disguise? Like, there were so many different routes that you could have went through here. And I, I don't understand how make it make sense. I honestly think I think that goes into it because that profile may have been created by, you know, unintentional biases, but that profile then gives people an excuse to act on those biases. Like because your beat cop isn't the one writing this up, you know, this profile up. That's, you know, a detective that's someone trained. But the beat cop is the one who sees a lot of these sex workers and doesn't like them. And we'll use it to harass people. And then another part that gets me at the end, they say possess great intelligence, which a lot of these serial killers do. If this person's so intelligent, why would they be on the street where everyone can see them in this same clothing and profile? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. Look for someone who's intelligent. They'll look for someone more discreet, you know, than a sex worker. And you pointed out something really good. You pointed out something really good about like the idea that wearing these clothes is a ploy, so why would this person be wearing it just day to day? Like Ted Bundy dressed up as a cop sometimes. That doesn't mean he, that doesn't mean he had a cop fetish, you know? Like anyway. Oh, after this failed attempt, police began to fingerprint bodies at the morgue. And I could not find a direct source on this, but some sources claim it is because they assumed that the murderer had committed suicide. And this attempt to ID the murderer also did not help the case at all. So they're just over here pressing people's fingers randomly at the morgue. Like just, just no rhyme or reason, just hoping that someone there was the murderer. That seems like a Hail Mary, you know, like there's virtually no chance of them actually being the killer, but let's, why not? We have their bodies. So let's, let's try it. So far, the entire police investigation has been a waste of time and money. And I'm sorry for laughing, but it's just, it's just, oh, I just can't, I just can't understand how this happened. And throughout all this, surprise, surprise, more and more elderly women were being found murdered in their own homes. Finally, the police got the big break that everyone was hoping for. And it was literally handed to them because on January 25th, 2006, a tenant found his landlady, Ana Maria de los Reyes Alfaro, dead in her home. And she was 82 years old, and she was an 82-year-old resident of Mexico City. Alfaro had been strangled to death with a stethoscope, and the tenant 
actually saw a woman fleeing the scene. This time, though, police were ready and they arrested her that same day. They were on it for once, you know, like a broken clock is right twice, okay? They were on it. And everyone, however, was just shocked and surprised to find out that the murderer wasn't the man that everyone was looking for, but a woman. And to make things even more shocking, it was a woman that some even saw as a local celebrity as she had been previously active in the Lucha Libre scene. So yes, Juana was the old lady killer. And I just want to point out here, I didn't mention this part because there's just so much conflicting, but I was looking at police sketches. Police actually did like a bust of what they thought the the killer looked like based on witness testimony. So this is either going to be exactly the same or exactly opposite. Well, guess. Which one was it? Well, because of, because of the history of police incompetence, I want to say exactly opposite. But I may be pleasantly surprised here. You will be pleasantly surprised because it looked just like her. And to me, the bus looked ambiguous when it comes to, like, gender. Because uh, they were looking for someone with a short haircut. I then just assume short haircut, broad shoulders, that's a man. But it can be anyone. It can literally be anyone. So... The thing is, Juana just fit the physical description very well, very well. She was muscular, broad shoulders. She had the hair color. So if you were seeing her from the back, you can easily mistaken her and misgender her. When police first detained her, she was carrying a card that identified her as a social worker, which she was not. And remember, she was often seen with a stethoscope. So it is generally believed that she was able to gain entry as a nurse or a social worker who was either working the victim's case or offering to sign them up for welfare services. And there was some speculation saying that she somehow acquired a list from welfare services, whether she stole it or someone gave it to her. And that's how she found her victims. Upon searching Juana's home, police found trophies that she had collected from her victim's home, many of which were religious relics. And they also found in her home an altar to Santa Morata, the saint of death. So which... I'm not sure what to make of that, but the media just ran with this altar fact and just began to paint her as like the devil. Like it was just really, it was a circus. It was a media circus to put it lightly. Interestingly, Juana only admitted to Alfaro's murder, claiming that she was at the home looking for work, but then killed her because Alfaro reminded her of her own mother. And she just had so much hatred in her at that time when upon seeing her that she killed her. And now to me, I'm not a lawyer, luckily you are, but to me, it makes sense that she would only admit to the murder that she was found at. Yeah, that makes sense. Because they only have strong evidence for that one. So without, you know, corroborating witnesses or evidence, how are you going to extrapolate to X number of other murders? And I feel like that happens quite often, right? I think that happens very frequently, especially because like you want to think 
if we're thinking like rational people, quote unquote rational people in our best interest at the time, like if police have you dead to rights on one thing, it doesn't make sense for you to keep denying it if they have like DNA evidence, if they have a reliable eyewitness, etc. Like you should just fess up to that one and the ones that they don't have strong evidence. No, that wasn't me. That was other lady killer. Yes. The police were having none of this. And they were able to officially link her to 10 more murders. And if 11 was not enough for you, police speculated that she committed up to 49 murders. They just didn't have enough evidence to charge her. Oh my God. Juana was so busy. Do you know if she was doing this during her Lucha Libre career or after? I think it's around after. I'm not 100% sure because a lot of the numbers were wrong in this case. It almost seems like it was after because in the reports that describe what she did after she was caught, they said she was a popcorn fan. But on March 31st, 2008, Juana Barraza was found guilty on 16 charges of murder and aggravated burglary, including 11 separate counts of murder. She was sentenced to 759 years in prison. Oh, man. I don't think she's going to get out, you guys. Spoiler alert. Well, she's eligible for parole in 2058. What? They're going to give her parole? Yeah. Mexico has a law where, like, you have to serve your time consecutively or something like that. So, like, she's serving all those at the same time. So, it's, it's technically only 60 years total in the time of length. But it's all these charges add up to 759 years. Prison life is going moderately well for her. As reported by sociologist Susana Vargas... Cervantes, author of The Little Old Lady Killer, The Sensationalized Crimes of Mexico's First Female Serial Killer, Juana spends her days in jail escorting elderly women inmates around a courtyard. She, she, they put her in, in charge of the old ladies? They, I thought, I thought she might be like, you know, like the badass of the prison where you killed a bunch of people, you become head honcho, right? But she's like, in charge of old ladies? I hope someone's keeping an eye. I hope that someone's keeping an eye on Juana and these little old ladies. Someone, someone just needs to be looking out for them. There's so much here that I felt like I say I don't understand. And this is possibly the biggest part of the case that I do not understand. And Cervantes, so that is a sociologist. She says about Juana, Barraza thinks that the media destroyed her life and that of her daughters. She still does not understand why, with other responsible for the murders of elderly women, they have not been stigmatized like her. And what Juana is talking about here in this quote is that, is what I've been hinting at throughout the episode, is that the media had a field day with this case, and it had been sensationalized, uh, reacted to, and it has been reenacted on stage and in the ring. It, there's so much fictional media with this case. I saw a reenactment with a woman with what looked like a blow-up doll. Like, just gonna leave that there, my eyes. And it doesn't help that even American media jumped in. Criminal minds muddied the waters even more by making her inspiration for a couple of their characters. I was gonna ask, 
I was going to ask because I was like, this sounds very familiar to one Criminal Minds episode that I remember. And this one, they did make it a man dressed as a woman. I remember that. Okay. I was, okay. The entire time I was like, I heard this. I've, I've never seen this one, which is shocking because I swear I've seen all of them. I swear I must have missed this one somehow. But honestly, I also swear that while seeing reports, I swear to half the reports confused the Criminal Minds fandom wikia with real life. So finding these sources were so freaking difficult. And from translating things from Spanish to abusing Google's look inside the book feature, I was a mess. I was a mess. And that is why a lot of the names of the victims are not in this episode because of all the reputable journalistic sources that I found, most only focused on the crime and the criminal and not the part that really matters, at least to me. And that's the victims, the people who have to live with the aftermath of this. And you said this was early 2000s that this was happening, right? Okay, so I feel like in this era in the U.S., like the very recent, probably last less than 10 years, is when you've had a pushback in true crime about, no, we want to really focus on victims. I feel like this is still relatively new in the U.S., and that has a much more established crime reporting, true crime audience. So in Mexico, I can understand why where you don't have the same journalistic standards, at least developing at a, a similar, you know, pattern. Like, yeah, I can see why they would focus on the crime, because in the early 2000s, the U.S. journalists were horrible at reporting about victims. I forgot to mention, too, is that they believe that she may have murdered 49 people. And for me, I don't think so. And I'm just thinking about their police work and their ability to be able to differentiate her killings from another because this is all in Mexico City, which had a high murder rate during these times. So I wonder if we're just trying to lump these all these killings together, tie it up in a bow and just say it was the lady killer. Yeah, because then they don't have to do the real work for it. They could just say solved, check mark, done. Yeah. And you can mark a case, quote unquote, solved without actually getting a conviction. So I think that's it is what it is. Like, yeah, it happens a lot, unfortunately. Has she done interviews about her process at all? No. There's not a lot of interviews with her personally. And the only interview that I found with her was um, the one that was in that book that I mentioned that's in the sources and an interview she did before she was even captured about wrestling, which I couldn't even find. Mm. Okay. Yeah. I always, I kind of, I hate when killers do interviews because I'm just like, you just want to mythologize yourself. You just want to capitalize off of this, but it is really helpful when they talk about their process, like how they build up. Like a lot of the killers in the 60s and 70s that we all know to this day and age, like Ted Bundy, Ed Kemper, all those big old names, like it really helps us to understand their escalation process. And I am so curious to hear about Juana's. Like when did her resentment against her mother manifest? When, what was her first kill like? When did she start developing the ploy or did she use it from the very beginning? You know? Maybe you can write a book just like that. And maybe you can ask her because I really want to know what she thinks about that. So before we close, any more closing ideas or thoughts you want to get out and talk about? 
I feel really bad for Juana. Feel really bad for her. I know she did horrible things. I'm not condoning the horrible things she did. She made bad choices. But also bad choices were done to her. So I feel bad for her in that sense that she's a human who suffered and then she's brought suffering onto others. No big ups to the Mexico City Police. Y'all y'all dropped the ball. And thank you for having me because I did not know the story at all. And this was super fun. And again, everyone, you can find Aro on her YouTube channel, and I am going to link that below along with all of her socials. Thank you, everyone, for listening. My name is Sophia Talley, and this was True Crime and Net. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.